Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, while I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hey, this is Nicole calling from Hamilton, and I needed to let everyone know that I really proudly support Vish and Creative Control. I have for many years, I will for many more, as long as he keeps delivering these amazing interview podcasts. When you hear one of Vish's interviews, you think he's known this guest for years, they're good friends, uh, but the truth is he approaches every interview, whether it's sort of up-and-coming indie artists or established icons or like famous intimidating comedians with Uh, a really deep, genuine curiosity, so he's never met this person, and the same really warm uh, candor, so he's known them forever. I think it really lends to a great chat, no matter who he's talking to, and for that reason, I think you should throw Vish, like what, a dollar a month? He's got jokes. The jokes make it worth it. Support Creative Control on Patreon. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol today. I'm Visha's wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit. Creative Control with Vish Comic. Chandler Levac is a talented film critic, screenwriter, and director based in Toronto, Ontario. A contributor to the Globe and Mail and a Canadian National Magazine nominee, Levac has also received nominations for her work directing music videos, and her 2017 short film, We Forgot to Break Up, screened at the Toronto International Film Festival and at South by Southwest. Levac's directorial feature-length debut is a brilliant one called I Like Movies, and after winning hearts at select film festivals and acclaim, 
from critics. It is currently screening in theaters across Canada. Chandler and I caught up recently to discuss this brilliant autobiographical new film, I Like Movies, her Toronto life and family history, her work as a cultural critic and how it informs her work now as a filmmaker, wanting to be a cool teen and a cool adult, the compelling story and wonderful cast of I Like Movies, loving Saturday Night Live and its role in this film, speaking out against misogyny and sexism in popular culture industries, regionalism and telling Canadian stories, receiving fervent and generous support from Sarah Pauly, exciting future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. Plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 762 of Creative Control, featuring the brilliant storyteller and filmmaker Chandler Levac with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi Chandler, how's it going? Good, how are you, Vish? I'm well, I'm very well. I noticed you plugged your nose as you said my name, like you were trying to create like a helium effect, was that on purpose? <laughs> no, I just... I'm feeling I, good, I'm feeling really good, Vish, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that's no, what I, wait, I, my nose became really itchy as soon as I said your name, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Sorry to call attention to your uh, your touching of your nose. Uh, no, it's uh, nice to see you, where in the world are you today? I'm in Toronto, Ontario. Oh, Toronto, I... I so was watching a Raptors game uh, a night or two ago with my family, because that's what we do. We gather around the television and watch Raptors games. Uh-huh. Anyway, they had this shot of Toronto. They had a shot of the gardener, of all things. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I miss Toronto, because I used to visit Toronto all the time. But I also yeah. didn't like... Li- do you like living in Toronto? Because I, I talked to a lot of people from Toronto now, and they're like, I want out. And, and people are... There seems to be some sort of minor exodus. Are you enjoying Toronto life? The publication trial. <laughs> the magazine, yeah. For those around the world, I did a little mistake there. Yeah, I just no, you, um, Life in Toronto, I suppose? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Toronto has changed so much. I mean, you and I kind of lived through the same era of like the Torontopia era. And I feel like the, the kind of creative energy that people used to have towards, you know, independent music and art and theater making and filmmaking has just been totally transposed towards like opening up a hipster bon me shop like there's just the city is in such a dark place in terms of um capitalism and despair and i feel like it's yeah it's a really dark time to be living in toronto as as, as any kind of person who wants to make independent art like it, it it's yeah. devastating yeah well that doesn't sound good uh the <laughs> second part of my somewhat convoluted question was or maybe the subtext, if I didn't say that right, is have you thought about skipping town, going somewhere else? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do think about it. I think I'm at a strange period of my life. You know, I'm 36, so I'm kind of like confused about, yeah, like where I sort of want maybe the next part of my life to, to follow. And, and I, you know, like I, I love Montreal so much. And that's a city that I feel a deep affinity with and kind of have lived on and off in over the last decade. But 
it's also really hard city to actually live in if you're an anglophone and um and so there's a part of me i feel like every three and a half years i have this kind of saturn returns moment where i like move to montreal for like three months get my heart like absolutely decimated (laughs) and then i come back with kind of my tail between my legs and then you know three and a half years later i'm like delusional enough to like start it all over again but that city really has a real psychic hold on me. Um, like all Torontonians, I aspire to move to New York one day. Oh, yeah. And and I think about that, too, because I, I really feel like when I connect with that city so much and when I'm there, sometimes I feel like I'm like a better version of myself. Maybe I'm a bit freer than I can be in Toronto where, you know, you run into like nine people just walking down the street every day. It's like a small town kind of in a big city. But I also love Toronto very deeply. My family's here. Um there's so many amazing institutions like TIFF and the Globe and Mail and, and just people in my life that have really been supportive to me and that I've found to have a career in. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I feel like when I leave and travel and then I come back to Toronto, I always am like so grateful that I'm, that I'm here. Yeah. Uh, you've said a number of things there that I want to follow up on and, ter- uh, <laughs> and I just want to make note of them before I forget. Uh, vocationally, I just want to, for those who don't know, I want to kind of get at that a little bit. What, what you consider mm-hmm. your, your, your job? Because right now, as we're speaking, we're talking about a beautiful, funny, uh, intense film you made. I like movies and I want to, can't wait to talk more about uh, where that came from and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, you mentioned the Globe and Mail. You mentioned the Toronto International Film Festival associated with you in, in a few different ways. So I want to get into all of those things, but, uh, First things first, uh, you mentioned you have family in Toronto. Are you from Toronto? Did you move to Toronto? Where are you from? I was born in Toronto. My family all settled in Kensington Market kind of in the late 50s, early 60s after uh, surviving the Holocaust. And they still own a building in Kensington to this day. And my mom actually lives there and is a landlord in Kensington Market. Oh, wow. So that's kind of like where our roots were. Um, and then I, my parents, yeah, we, I grew up kind of, I was born at like Bath, uh, Christie and Sinclair. And then when I was five, we moved to Brantford, Ontario, which is, uh, you know, where the telephone was invented and, uh, Wayne Gretzky was born there. It's also, I think Ontario's capital of teen pregnancy. So it has many, uh, yeah. lauded accomplishments to its name. Yeah. Uh, and then I, went when I was in grade five, when we were, when I was 10, we moved to Burlington, which is where my film is set. Yeah. <laughs> And that's kind of where I spent, you know, my like preteens and all of my high school experience. And then and then I moved back to Toronto for university. So I've been living here since 2004. Wow. OK. On and off. Yeah. Um, you, I, I've talked to are you sorry, I've heard and read stories about families who survived the Holocaust. Uh, I did not know that was the case uh, for your family. Uh, the generation you're from. Um, is it possible to articulate what that means to you to know that's in your lineage, that that's something that was part of your, your family history? Yeah, it was, it was my grandfather. He was in Hungary in a concentration camp. And then he actually like, yeah, kind of reunited with all his siblings in Toronto. They all kind of escaped and and came back here. So it is kind of an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, I always felt like a really strong connection to my Jewish heritage. I'm only like a quarter Jewish, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I I did go on birthright. And uh, I don't know, I was always like really, really fascinated with, with that. And, and I remember I would go to like Passover services or, 
you know, a friend's bar mitzvah. And I remember like telling my grandma, like, I really want to be Jewish. I think that I am Jewish. And she was like, bad things happen to Jewish people. Hmm. And at the time, I didn't know what that meant because um, I was only about, you know, five or six. And then later I kind of found out what my grandfather had gone through and those experiences. And I don't know, it's interesting because I think my mom's half Jewish and, and she doesn't consider herself Jewish at all. And she doesn't celebrate any of the traditions. And she really feels like estranged from that part of identity. And hmm. I think for my grandfather, especially, he never wanted to celebrate like any of the holidays. He didn't really go to any you know temples or services or anything although i heard kind of towards the end of his life he was he was kind of rekindling more of that aspect of himself but it was always kind of like a source of like shame in in my family i guess shame or trauma um obviously both yeah yeah sorry i i know they're not it's a heavy note to start this podcast uh, on. well i'm sorry you you invoked it <laughs> and I, I just i yeah. i I don't know. Uh, there's obviously very dark aspects of this film as well. Existential mm-hmm. crisis, existential dread. Uh, so there's the heaviness in the film that I, I'm just wondering if it, uh, if you're tapping into that, uh, that part of your family history, even a little bit of despair and what the hell am I doing? What was the purpose of life? Cause I think that goes on a lot in this very funny <laughs> movie. <laughs> it's a very funny movie, but it's also, I, I assume you would agree. It's, more than tinged with darkness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Yeah, what... I think that's something I'm always trying to maybe explore in stuff that I do. This idea of things that are both like very, very funny and have very broad like jokes and stuff. But then I don't know. I think I think obviously that kind of generational trauma is inherited and passed out and yeah. kind of filters through osmosis through like generations and stuff. Um and, uh, and, and, and as I keep writing and I'm, I'm just always so fascinated and, you know, my parents' experiences, my grandparents' experiences, yeah. I, I really want to tell stories about my family. I don't know how they feel about that, but, but I, I yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating to me, um, you know, and, 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 uh, yeah. And I, I feel like a very strong connection to that, that part of my, my family and, and to my grandfather and what he, what he went through. Well, I mean, I got about nine years on you, but I feel like you're probably getting into that time frame where you're, uh, of your life rather, the age, I guess is what I meant to say there, not time frame, but your age is, you're at a point where you're like, okay, looking ahead, I'm at a point where there's not going to like, you know, you're probably getting to that zone of like, what's the future going to be like? How long am I going to be around kind of stuff? That stuff kind of comes into your brain. But I think as I've uh, particularly from us, uh, uh, my wife and I, you know, as parents and, and having children, time becomes this weird thing because we're seeing little mm-hmm. reflections of ourselves emerge uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. And and it's mm-hmm. making me think about you're kind of forced to think about your history. And how you were raised mm-hmm. and you're, and you know, oh, am I doing something that my parents did to me that I didn't like? I better be more conscious of that. Or what would my parents mm-hmm. do in this situation? You know, you start to have this weird. And then as I don't know about you, but my parents are getting older and uh, mm-hmm. I'm having to, hey, have you done your exercises? Have you eaten yet? Why are you eating dinner so late? Now I'm quasi from afar parenting them. I'm just saying yeah. you're probably at the same so I I'll ask you like do you feel like in the middle of something right now at your age? Like uh with your parents, with your with your future, with yourself, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I you're mean, middle absolutely. I guess you are technically middle-aged. Are we middle-aged? 
I think I'm, I'm middle aged. I'm 36, so I please don't let me be middle aged. Come on, I'm still <laughs> unhinged. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, <laughs> are you feeling that a little bit? Like even as you ponder this movie and what yeah. the parents are going through, and the, the this, and we'll get to it in a second. Even this manager character is older but young. Mm. And yeah. trying to figure themselves out and then dealing with this kid who is, she sees her promise in his future kind of thing. Anyway, you see what I'm talking about? It's like a swirl, a temporal confusion. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so interesting. I mean, I spent most of the pandemic living with my dad, which I did not expect was going to happen to me, you know, at his place in, in Burlington, Ontario. So for about a year and a half, you know, it was just me and my dad, like, spending every night together like an all day together because you know he was working from home and I wasn't I was just working on this film and so yeah it was really strange to kind of go back into an environment where like you're living with your parent again but you're actually an adult and all you have is like free time to kill and and you can't leave the house like I never thought I would be you know really felt like being a child again you know exactly um yeah yeah now and also just I guess yeah I think I mean, that's such a strange part when you start to realize that your parents are are people (laughs) and then the kind of like as you get older, you know, and and then and then as you get even older, then you're starting to parent your parents, which I can see myself doing now. Yeah, my dad's losing his hearing. He's like kind of going deaf. So that's Mm -hmm. a bit uh, devastating. But um, yeah, he he wears uh, AirPods and he puts them on conversation mode. So instead of wearing hearing aids, he just always looks like he's like you know, about to go to the gym or right. <laughs> like, take a phone call. Right. That's kind <laughs> He's of like a constant iPod commercial. <laughs> that's kind of clever, actually, if you've got some vanity and you don't want to be seen. <laughs> yeah. My dad's lost his hearing a long time ago or in one year. And it's, yeah, it's a yeah. battle. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, yeah. It's like, did you ever read that book, The Velveteen Rabbit? Uh, that sounds familiar, actually. I don't think so, but it sounds like it might, maybe it's in the house. No, I don't. I'll say no. I'll answer no. Yeah, it's just sort of starting to feel like all the people in my life, like my parents and my my parents' dog, who's in the movie, who's very elderly, and my grandma, like, they're all these, like, kind of, like, well-loved stuffed animals that are, like, all the furs kind of falling off them, and you're just trying to, like, hug them so tight because you don't want them to leave. Yeah. This is a this is a heavy about. this is a heavy beginning to this conversation, but it's I think like again I feel like some of this is swirling on in the film as well. Um, I said I wanted to ask you a little bit about your vocation. Uh, obviously, we're here to talk. Oh, your sorry, your vocational pursuits. Uh, you mentioned a couple mm-hmm. of organizations that I think you're affiliated with or have worked with. Chandler, how would you characterize what it is you do for work uh, beyond filmmaking now? Yeah, I guess I would say I, I do. Um some some copy editing and 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 writing um and and work still as kind of a cultural critic and uh you know uh film writer so journalist despite the horrible uh you know conflict of interest i'm you know (laughs) trying to eke out a living as both a, a filmmaker and a film critic which uh Conflict of interest is, is interesting. Conflict of interest can be interesting, an interesting concept in cultural work, I find, because mm. I too uh, got into music by playing it, because that was what I really wanted mm. to do. And then as I got older, I discovered I could write about it. And uh, mm. then, yes, you're criticizing your peers, if or you want you want to be peers with the people you're criticizing. And sometimes I uh, slip into that even on this show. 
where uh, if I'm talking to a musician or I'm talking to someone like yourself, I can say, yeah, I know how, I know what it's like to write. And I, I, yeah, I made records. Like I know what that's like. So I don't know if it's conflict of interest or just like kinship or obviously I, yeah. I'm, I'm part of your, you feel like you're wanting to be part of the same realm, I guess. Is that a way of putting mm-hmm. it? I mean, you would think that both those things would actually make you better and more equipped to, to, to kind of both connect with uh, the people you're interviewing and also, you know, critically evaluate someone's, someone's work, someone's yeah. art, because, you know, I feel like having made a film, it's made me so much more empathetic as a film critic. I think, especially when I was really young, I kind of grew up in that sort of like vice magazine style of, of writing where like, you know, it was all about like voice and affect yeah. and the harsher you were on something or the more, audacious you were on the way that you were viewed it or sensationalistic or coarse like that was the style of writing back then and 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 i think criticism has it's incredibly insane how much criticism has changed over when i first started doing it in 2004 like literally in my first year of university to, to now i mean the whole conversation of of how to evaluate art and who gets to make it is is really everything's being called into question right now and even just the validity of a professional arts criticism in a world where, you know, you can access like 900 reviews as soon as a movie premieres at a film festival on Letterboxd or how Twitter kind of like forms the cultural consensus of something immediately after the first press release drops. Like it's wild. It is pretty wild. Um, uh, Some of us refer to it as the democratization (laughs) of criticism. And then you're like, yeah, but is democracy really working? Like how, how, What are we doing right now? So you're you're feeling even a little existential dread in terms of that work um, <laughs> that, that you do. Like, uh, what is a? I don't know. There's a lot of sorry, pandemic or no. I feel like there is a lot of like, what are we doing nowadays? Like in every realm, just like mm-hmm. what is the point of this? You know, and I feel like it maybe is informed by the fact that the Earth is trying to get rid of us <laughs> <laughs> by making the water uh, bad or high levels or yeah. making the air problematic every couple months there's a new thing in the air we're not supposed to breathe air and water pretty essential i'm pretty sure we're (laughs) supposed to have the air and the water so that's where i'm is that swimming around do you think just like a common low level not even i used to say during the pandemic there's just low level stress every day Mm. Uh, is it mid-level mid-level stress every day of just like what the hell are we doing like do you have that a little bit yeah in a weird way I found the pandemic kind of liberating because I I was really going through a, a kind of bad spout of depression right before it. So in a mm-hmm. way, having everything, obviously it was a horrible, um, you know, tragic experience for everybody to go through that I think, I think it's still going to take many years for us to all process the kind of chaotic, like trauma that the sort of period induced. But I think also just having it really took the pressure off of having to kind of perform or achieve anything or go to social events or I think I was just really feeling like so much uh, depression and and social anxiety at that time so in a strange way I was kind of grateful to just get get an excuse to live with my dad and not feel like a a failure or something and as sort of a a freelancer from who works from home I was like now everyone's just living my lifestyle I know yeah I I was enjoying I am still enjoying that aspect of things because I find uh commuting god I used to commute from Guelph to Toronto and it literally Chandler I would take a laptop at uh, 5 30 in the morning and get on a train and then at 8 I would arrive at Union Station and I would go to the office that I worked for at the time and I'd plug in the same laptop and then 
I would, at the end of the day, go home, not home till six or seven. My child was just, you know, my wife and my child. I was like, this is, it's the same. What do we, anyway, sorry. This is, I just, I have found what I'm frustrated by in terms of this uh, weird zone we're in where we're not really post-pandemic, but things are sort of normal Mm -hmm. again is I thought we would learn a lot about Mm -hmm. efficiencies and what are we doing wasting our time? Because I do feel like time it's part of your movie, I think. Time is just moving mm-hmm. on, and this is what we get stressed about. Like, well, how are we maximizing mm-hmm. our time? What are we doing with our time? Does that resonate mm-hmm. with you? Yeah, I, I think also just kind of the social media, you know, so much of, of just kind of observing other lives on screen and yeah. just need to constantly be like, I exist, I exist, I exist. Like, that's also um, quite gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is weird, and I, I'm not sure if there's a... We're not going to resolve this today. I like to say yeah. that on the show. Like, you and I are not going to solve this, but I, I do think it's worth invoking. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your interest in film and mm-hmm. where, where it came from, because obviously, as we've discussed, in almost every aspect of your working life, film is a constant, it seems to me. How did you get into films? I mean, it really is just kind of the origin story of this this movie that I made. You know, I Hmm. think there is just a certain point when I was kind of an early teenager where, I don't know, I just started like watching movies with this kind of fervor and intensity. I mean, it was kind of, it was everything. It was also music and um, art and just culture and, and really just kind of defining myself like by the things that I liked, like my taste, you know, because I think before that, I was just kind of like fed things that were like marketed to teenage girls in the, you know, late to mid nineties and early aughts, which were not uh, so great. (laughs) It was pretty like devastating time to be a a teenage girl and a a preteen girl back then because there wasn't a lot of fantastic media. So, Hmm. you know, it was just like watching like she's all that and, you know, 10 things I hate about you and which is a great movie, but, um, yeah, just and I was just addicted when I was a, a sort of a preteen to anything that would tell me what a teenager was going to be like, you know, huh. you know, because I, I I hadn't really experienced anything, but I like I was addicted to media, TV shows, films, books that could tell me what my life as a teenager was supposed to be like, and and I was just I just loved those those books and movies. So like Dawson's Creek, you know, was like a humongous show for me, and I watched that. It started when I was in grade six, and then it ended, I think, in grade ten. So I watched it for my entire adolescence and uh, obsessively. And I think there's something about popular culture, maybe when you're a bit alienated, that it kind of almost makes you feel nostalgic for experiences that you've never had. Yeah. And it sets up these like false expectations of what your life is supposed to be like, but then you're actually just spending your whole life watching movies and TV shows that tell you that you're not a real teenager. And so, yeah, I think I always had this really kind of meta complex obsessive relationship to popular culture. And then as I got older, you know, I feel like I found things that I really like almost uh, imprinted on like the strokes first album that was like absolutely huge for me. And I felt like before that, and even like, know about music but then I I found that band and you know not only did I want to like date all of those guys I wanted to be them and I wanted to dress like them but I wanted like to just be in that world and so 
I started like dressing like maybe the kind of people that I wanted to date, which like doesn't actually look so good on like a 13 year old girl with like giant hips. (laughs) And, uh, you know, who's wearing like nine ties that she got from Value Village or a shirt that she's like borrowing from her dad. And, you know, she's stealing his cover sneakers that are too big for her. But yeah, I just I just felt like was really dreaming of this other world. And then I was really looking to like, yeah, magazines were a huge part, like Spin Magazine, especially. I remember seeing the strokes on the cover of Spin and I was shocked. I was like, I thought this was a band that I only knew about. They're on a cover of a magazine that I like am seeing at like Indigo. And then that was a great sort of introduction to like indie rock. But it's like I had to kind of learn about everything through these like tactile, like actual forms of media, which don't exist anymore. Like, yeah. you know, and, and, and my whole cultural relationship was about like physical objects and having to track down physical objects and buy them and own them and stuff. Cause you couldn't just yeah. steal or stream things. I sound like a hundred years old, but I, no, no, this, I mean, it's also telling that your, <laughs> your film is set at a, at an interesting and transitional time. Uh, like literally the year it's set in, I think is uh, an interesting and transitional time for how we, what I'm getting at, I guess, is that the internet had existed uh, by mm-hmm. 2002, three or whatever. It's 2003, roughly, the film is set in. Is that correct? 2003, 2004. Yeah, yeah. And that, obviously, the internet had been around, uh, depending on uh, what kind of access points you had to machines. Uh, the internet had been around yeah. for a good uh, seven, eight, nine years in a way email and stuff like that was happening but that was around the point where like and we're going to get to this in a moment because i want to actually do ask you to uh summarize uh what i like movies is sort of about for people so i don't bungle it but um yeah sorry i've gone on a bit of a tangent of just trying to figure out why you've set this film when you've set it because it's also set in a video store, like a VHS sort of video store, which some people listening, who am I kidding? Most of my listeners are going to know exactly what we're talking about because they're also old, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> younger people. And div- there's a lot of DVDs. And DVDs. Yes, of course. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's what it, yeah, that's actually really what it was. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm confusing myself. My main thing here is, because I've gone on a ramble, I'm listening to you talk about being a preteen and wondering what it's like to be a teenager. And you're, and you're, mm-hmm. and you're also a, uh, immersing yourself in dreams of dating musicians and and losing (laughs) yourself in film. So there's some measure of imagination going on there, but I think there's also probably some measure of escapism. Uh, And I I know those maybe, uh, they're not intertwined, but I guess I wonder if you can ponder where that impulse came from of like, I can't wait to be somewhere else and someone else. I can't wait to be older. I can't wait to be... Because that comes up in this film, too. You have a couple of really precocious teens who want to be respected and want to be thought of as not only cool, but like mature. Um, And even in the way they convey that, they seem narcissistic and immature, Um, (laughs) which is, you know, we're all trying to find ourselves at that point. But do you have a sense of why you couldn't wait to like you were actually seeking out movies to figure out what your life might be like as a teenager. Like that's a, that's a, I never thought I would watch Ferris Bueller's day off, but, but never thought, I mean, my, to be honest, my, my mom's workplace people would say, if I call, they're like, what's Ferris up to? Cause I would always play hooky. Uh, oh. they'd always like, Oh, is he sick again? Is he staying home? And I did do that quite a bit, but I never mm-hmm. viewed that as uh aspirational. 
I, I didn't want to be Cameron or Ferris Bueller, but those, but at the same time, maybe I did. I don't know. Anyway, enough about me. Do you know <laughs> why you thought at that point, like, I got to be somewhere else and someone else? Do you know where that kind of comes from? No, I, I think I felt that way like as a little kid. Like as a little kid, I was like, get me out of here. <laughs> and you wanted to be older, it sounds like. I don't know if I wanted to be older, but I definitely wanted to be cool. Right. And I definitely wasn't. I definitely wasn't. So and I definitely like as a young kid had this really like strong streak of like needing like to express myself and perform yeah. and like be seen and understood and all the time. And I would like you know, put on plays with like, make the like kids across the street from me. I'd be like, we're doing a play for our parents. And they're like, okay. And then I'd be like, here's the like, here's your roles. And I'm going to put the end of Green Gables like musical soundtrack off. And here's, we're going to choreograph a dance. And I remember like putting on these plays and my mom's like, is it over yet? I'm like, no, they're still going. And oh she's like, God. well, you've been doing this for 15 minutes and I want it to be done. Yeah, my kids like, are the, it's not my done. kids are the exact same. My son <laughs> will be like, we made a play. I'm like, okay. And we're like, where? <laughs> what is happening? So is it being wanting to be the center of attention or more wanting to entertain people from your point of view? Uh, that's a, These are some really heavy, like Mark Marion questions. I like it. I, I, I'm um, insulted by this. I've been doing this a long time, too. <laughs> I, I, I ask good questions, I think, or whatever. They are a bit heavy. So. No, I, I, this is a very good question. So I, I, I like it. Um, well, I think it was always like, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I was, it was this kind of need to, to be seen, I guess, or, or validated by people. And then I think my mom would always, the worst thing my mom would always say to me is that I was being attention seeking. And, you know, my parents would always kind of define things by negative attention and, and positive attention. So I think if I was being very like showboating and kind of annoying and performative, they would be like, you're trying to get negative attention right now, you know? Mm. And for them, like positive attention was like, you know, having a clean room and, you know, wearing a, a, a you know, washing my hair and, and doing my homework. Positive stuff. attention always seems to be connected think, to chores. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yeah. And I think I was just this really like kind of emotionally sensitive, kind of volatile, like super creative, but kind of chaotic mess, which I guess is, is Lawrence as well. You know, there's a, I've had this over the years and I've tried to uh, take it into consideration because when you do something like you do, or like I do, where you're, you have a byline and you're mm -hmm. sharing your thoughts, uh, people do assume that you're doing it for some sort of ego gratification. And I can't deny that there's not something in there to that point, but I, I, you know, yeah. Since my wife and I, when we were in the mid 2000s, we started a, a college radio show uh, in Guelph and uh, we would have guests on. Uh, I, I made a point of saying I wanted to do a, a, seg a segment at least once a week with an interview. And as such, I would promote the show, like let pe promote the show, meaning like let people know that it was happening as best I could with the tools we had at the time, message boards, social media mm -hmm. in its nascent forms, maybe. And invariably, people would be like, "Oh man, you're just fucking, you're just so self-promotional." I'm like, "Yeah, but I'm telling you, that there's a guest on my show. I'm not telling you to listen to me monologue. I'm saying I think this guest is cool, but I there were just I, I can tell you, Chandler, like there's just some sort of embittered, like, ah, oh, you're fucking full of yourself. I'm like, but it's all about the other person. So when I ask you if you feel like you were just getting trying to get attention or entertain people, those are different things because to try to entertain mm -hmm. someone. And hopefully lighten up their day, which is what I feel, <laughs> A, is what I hope 
I'm just going to talk about myself a little bit to disprove that I'm a narcissist. But forgive me for a moment. I'm just meaning like for me, my this thing you're on is really meant as much as I'm talking too much, meant to be a platform to showcase you. And when I promote it, I don't say or whatever. When I try to let people know about it, I try to say I have this great guest on I think is cool. I, I think you might think they're cool. Yes, I'm involved, but I have this sort of objective feeling about it. And most, but I know, I know from feedback, people don't view it that way. Oh, it's all about you. Have you ever encountered this where people think, oh, you think you're so high and mighty as a critic? Oh, you're some fancy filmmaker now. And you're like, yeah, but I'm telling a story and I'm trying to, I'm trying to, it's, it's coming from some measure of empathy. Uh, sorry, now I'm Mark Marining myself, perhaps, but do you see where I'm coming from? <laughs> you, have you had these thoughts or have you had that reception to your work where people assume it's about you and you're like, no, I'm, I, I love this film. I'm, I want to tell you about this film. Mm-hmm. That's why I wrote this nice review of it. Like, have you had that, right. that conflict or are people confronting you with stuff like that? I don't think so. But I do think that like all criticism is essentially autobiography, right? Because it's about your own personal taste. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think a lot of times if I was kind of reviewing cultural objects um, and, and, and they struck a chord with me personally, I was maybe using those reviews to work out issues in my life that I was going through. Maybe sometimes, unfortunately, against the cultural object themselves where they were yeah. a little bit of a punching bag because, you know, I've just gone through a breakup or oh, uh, it like. Absolutely. Sometimes I come across an old review I wrote of something and if it's negative, I'm like, I wonder what was happening to me that day. Yeah, which is, is so interesting, right? But it's like, I mean, that's, I mean, what art is made for humans. So mm. how can you not expect the people? I mean, that's what you want. You want like the subjectivity, I think, in someone's personal relationship to an object. Otherwise we all our criticism would just be like either this kind of mass consensus that is kind of like an algorithmic kind of like decision, like, Oh, okay. Rotten Tomatoes is like evaluating all the reviews and this is the worth of it. But I, you know, really beautiful criticism that like really struck me and the kind of writers I always wanted to emulate, like Pauline Kael or Lester Bangs or Chuck Klosterman, like they really, I think that was for me what, excited me about criticism and why I hated my academic education in in film school, like studying film through a purely academic lens because there was no personal approach to it. And it didn't, it wasn't fun and subjective. It was like very analytical and and dry and kind of theoretical. And for me, I've always like, the reason I love criticism is yeah, kind of as a way to have a form of self-expression. I mean, it's weird to kind of do it through the lens of other people's art. Yeah. (laughs) And clearly I was kind of, burying and repressing this desire to like make my own films probably because of that nagging voice from my parents of being like stop stop just stop (laughs) nobody wants to hear this you know well more than any letter section though like you were talking about how there's like 900 reviews of something when it comes out now Mm -hmm. Uh, have you noticed with social media the instantaneous critique of the critic like the 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 hot take like the critic or whoever the newspaper, the magazine, whatever posts mm. the review. And then there's this whole other genre of criticizing right. the review. And, and I'm, that's an interest. Have you encountered that in your, in your work? I mean, sometimes if it's really off base or, you yeah. know, like a really stupid take, it, it is kind of fun to see people be like, 
who does this person think he is? Yeah, that's so that's but that's what but that's um, what I'm encountering. Or, or like yeah. this criticism is mother, like this review of like you yeah, know. Yeah. There's also that I feel like there's the lexicon of uh, I don't know the osmosis of ex- exploring culture through Twitter. It's like this weird hazy like stream of consciousness thing where. Well, my son is only 11. They will often talk to me about movie scenes, and I re- I'm like, when did you watch that movie? And I realized it's just through memes. Mm. Like they'll and they'll be like they'll be like, haha, Walter White. I'm like, who how have you watched Breaking Bad? I would not have permitted that. Yeah. And I'm your I'm your father. I haven't yeah. seen it. I haven't seen it. I just it's a meme. I'm like, oh, okay. Anyway, yeah, it, it's a weird time for consumption because people don't feel they need that they feel like the soundbite has fulfilled them. And they know everything yeah. about a topic based on the it's not a well, the meme or the soundbite. So one mm-hmm. one quick thing I thought of as we were just talking about criticism is because um, you invoked earlier like conflict of interest. I'm a reviewer and now I'm also making the films. Do you not think, though, that um, by articulating your your thoughts about films or music over the years, slowly but surely, like your body and your mind are developing a kind of here's what I like, here's mm-hmm. what I don't like about this realm so then when you go into it you've basically been writing little diary entries about what you like (laughs) about film for years and years and years do you find that uh that informs your approach to like making not the pressure of like i don't want to do the things i hate but maybe just intrinsically inherently because you've articulated so much of what you like and don't like do you think that impacts you as someone actually as a practitioner of the form Yeah, I really like the way you put that little diary entries, because I do think it's true. Like, I think I I, I really developed my taste, which I think is such a fundamental part to making films, right? Because at the beginning of making any kind of art, like all you have is your taste, you know, and then you also kind of have to do the the execution, like the hard work of like, you know, like Malcolm Gladwell says, like the 10,000 hours of actually like putting into practice, you know, you need to edit those, your mom's friend's video of her yoga studio and you know (laughs) the music video that you shoot for a hundred thousand dollars for your friend and you know um and and write you know seven scripts that don't get made like all that stuff ends up kind of bleeding into your work I remember my my friend Jeremy had this like beautiful metaphor about how it's like on one side of it's like a triangle and like on one side of the pyramid is like you know, all of the art that you admire and all the movies that changed your life and all the profound experiences you had kind of like, uh, like knowing yourself and knowing your taste. And then on the other side is like, yeah, all the, you know, footage you log and the interviews you transcribe and like the humiliations you endure pitching things that don't get made. And then, and like stuff you do for hire and then the stuff that's like really gratifying and artistically fulfilling. And then at the top of the pyramid is hopefully like, getting paid well to do stuff that you love and a lot of people like don't ever get to meet I guess that top of the triangle sometimes but that's like the goal right it's this kind of like good combination of like making your own art that you feel uh has integrity to it but then also being able to you know survive as an artist and and make a living at it too yeah you may not know that you're training yourself by engaging even in the realm of you know how many sorry have you uh had a glance at uh quentin tarantino's latest book uh i think it's called cinema speculation have you read that at all no i haven't read it are you a fan of his i love tarantino but i don't know if i want to read that book 
maybe maybe in a bit. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating in terms of how much and how, like how young he was when he was exposed to pretty intense films. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways he like between his he had he seemed to have uh, I guess sort of a broken home situation. So he would just be his mother would take him to films like Dirty Hair, like just stuff when he was like a kid. Yeah. And somehow he would, I guess there was no MPAA. There was no like, no, you can't come into this, you know, film. I'm sorry. I was just asking, I was just trying to talk about uh, exposure to film um, because I just found that fascinating. In your case too, like like I say, the training thing, just going to see films and like how it informs what you do as a, a filmmaker, I assume is part of it. So let's get to it. Tell us if in your own words, what I Like Movies is about, if you can. Sure. Um, yeah, well, it's it's kind of uh, this sort of uh, Joker origin story of this very pretentious <laughs> young teenage boy who's obsessed with cinema named Lawrence Queller. He's named after Ben Queller, my favorite musician. And uh, he gets a job in a video store in his hometown of Burlington, Ontario, um, to save money for what he thinks is going to be his future uh, life as an NYU film student. And then he forms a very complicated relationship with his older female manager at the store. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And this is, I, I saw in a tweet of yours, like, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing, it was like, move over, Fablemans, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I thought was funny. This is your origin story to some extent? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, there's a lot that's like very heavenly fictionalized and um, complete fiction, but... I did work at Blockbuster in high school. I was very pretentious and uh, I didn't have like a kind of deep relationship with the manager there, but there's a lot of kind of like the shell of it. That's, that's really true to my own experiences. And it's a very personal film. And how many films have you made at this point? Uh, this is my first feature film. It's remarkable. I just I wanted one, you to one short that, before that. You made a short. Where do you get the audacity? To make such a brilliant <laughs> first film. Like, it's really Thanks. brilliant. I'm like, how is this the first film? Uh, but seriously, I mean, how do you... I know this is going to maybe seem banal, but Chandler, I'm just very impressed. As a first film, it's, it seems fully realized. Uh, how did this happen? How did you have this idea? And then some... Who who got behind this? How did this work? Yeah, I mean, it was it was just made because um, Telefilm has this, this Talent to Watch grant. It's like a micro-budget grant for first features. And... Uh, I was really like, I felt like I was in my early thirties and I, I really wanted to make a movie and, you know, Lady Bird had come out and that movie struck such a deep chord with me. And I would watch like behind the scenes footage of like Greta Gerwig directing Lady Bird. And I would just cry. Like, I just felt like it was almost like, I feel like the way that women know when they're like ready to have a child, like I need to be a mother, like who's going to get me pregnant. But yeah. I felt that way about like, making a, a movie like I was like I'm ready to make a film I, I need to make a movie or I'm going to die and I was trying to get this other uh movie off the ground but the budget was like one million dollars and you know I just I couldn't get anybody to read the script I couldn't like get an actress to read it I couldn't get you know uh telefilm was like yeah we're interested if you can uh like assure us that the other seven hundred thousand dollars is already raised and I was like so it just felt like this like impossible thing. I felt like I was going to be waiting, you know, to ask for permission for the rest of my life. And no one was ever going to give it to me. So I found out about this grant. It was like $125,000. I was like, okay, like, just think of an idea that you could execute for for that amount of money. And like, yeah. 
yeah, maybe it's not going to be like perfect, but it's an opportunity to like try this out, this dream of yours, like write something that's pretty contained, like use it almost like a second film school where you can learn how to work with actors. Also at that time, I'd never written anything that I felt was actually authentic to my own voice and experiences, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'd, I'd been a critic for so long and I made the short film, but it was kind of more of an adaptation of a novel. And I felt like I found my way into it, but it didn't feel like urgently personal to me or, or risky in the same way. And, and, and I guess I just, in my entire life, I'd never made any personal uh, art <laughs> ever right. other than maybe like personal essays and kind of like cultural criticism stuff, but not, it's not the same thing, you know? So then I was like, okay, I'm doing this. And then, and then we had to shoot it during the pandemic. Oh, you did shoot it during the pandemic. I wasn't sure about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at the most dangerous possible time to be shooting in Ontario, at the height of the third wave when like the case counts were really spiking. Why did you before there were you, vaccines available? Oh my god, why did you do that? Why didn't you? You had to do it then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of like the way that the cookie crumbled. We oh. didn't want to keep waiting, and you know, at that time everything was so uncertain. So. It just felt like, I don't know, maybe, yeah, maybe if we keep waiting, yeah. things will get better. But who knows? This could be going on for the rest of our lives. Tell us a little bit about these uh, performers, because um, they seem to have a lot of work to do. Every relationship in this film is very intense. Uh, the scenes are all pretty much, even the ones with some levity are very intense. Or there's like, what's coming next? Can you talk a little bit about these performers by name? I just I I, I want to give you an opportunity to name them and uh, any insights about them that we might benefit from, or even things they brought to it that surprised you in terms of how they play these characters. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's just such an incredible ensemble of actors, and I feel really um, lucky to have worked with all of them. Isaiah Letnin, who's like the lead actor who plays Lawrence, it's his first time ever kind of being the leading role of anything remarkable. before too. Remarkable. And, that is remarkable. And he had such a difficult job to do. I mean, he has like, he never stops talking. He probably has like 17 monologues in the film. He's in almost every single shot of the movie. He has to play this very difficult, insufferable kind of teen boy. But then I think he imbues them with a so much like nuance and complexities, like an innately kind of sympathetic charismatic person yeah. and yeah and it, and he really is he had to kind of embody the whole tone of the movie like if you cast the wrong actor in that part like the movie just doesn't work yeah so i did this cast three this canada wide casting search with this amazing casting director jesse griffiths and you know there was like it was all over zoom so i never got to meet wow. anybody in person wow. Wow. Yeah. and you know it's all a lot of really interesting like iterations of the character some really great actors but there was just something about isaiah he's just like instantly nailed it and he worked really really hard yeah and then Romina Dugo who plays Elena is also just really really fantastic she's also hasn't had a leading role in a movie in like she's only had one like in the early 2000s yeah remarkable um and she used to be a competitive dancer so she's on the first season of so you think you can dance Canada <laughs> there's at least one scene and where she gets to exhibit some dancing and I was like oh she's got some moves actually that's really good <laughs> yeah yeah she's amazing and and she actually also does chore she is a choreographer too so she um she choreographed the dance scenes in, in suicide squad actually oh, okay, between wow. Margot Robbie and, and Jared Leto hmm. but she's yeah she's just unbelievable too and I think the two of them together are just great and then Krista Bridges, uh, who plays Lawrence's mom, Terry, had been in uh, this, the short scene that I had written at, when I was at the Canadian Film Center. And uh, I loved her performance in that. I thought she was so great. And so 
you know, just kind of offered the role to her. But um, she only came on like two weeks before we were supposed to start shooting. Oh, wow. So and and I thought like she really, really nailed it. Absolutely. And then yeah. Percy Hines White, who's on the Wednesday, the Netflix show. Yeah, he's he's so great, too. He played uh, Lawrence's friend. Yeah, his best yeah. friend, uh, yeah. Matt McCartrick. Wonderful. So this this is it's just an incredible ensemble, and it, the story is so jarring and moving and, and intense and funny. And I, I just I really enjoyed it. I alluded to the fact that it was set maybe twenty years ago, and I wonder. So there will be people encountering this film, younger people who are like video rental, DVD rental, <laughs> rental fees. Like there's just something, and that's like a ma- the rental fees is like a major bone of contention. I don't want to ruin anything, but why why set it? I know it's about you. I know it's a coming of age story for you, but what prompted you to set it in sort of let's let's face it, kind of technologically anyway, a bygone era? Yeah, I mean I just think well, A, it's a video store, so there's there's not much shelf life afterwards. I mean, they were kind of like going extinct towards like two thousand seven already. So yeah. there's not too many, you know, many years left to, to kind of set it in. But that's also, yeah, when I went to high school. So I think I just wanted it to be as authentic as possible to my own personal experiences. And, you know, it's just so fun to make a period piece and kind of rekindle these, these memories of what it was like to grow up in, in Southern Ontario in the early aughts and, and kind of really pay homage to this kind of like weird Canadiana that, that people might not remember anymore. Like, the big shiny tunes anthologies or the Oliver, the Cashman commercial, or, you know, Lawrence's sneakers are from like Adbusters magazine. Yeah. There's just like a lot of fun Easter eggs and, you know, a time in cinema that was um, maybe more pure for cinephiles. What about SNL? SNL is a <laughs> recurring, uh, a, it's something that the, the Lawrence and his buddy there, uh, Matt, they bond over. What, what did that yeah. why why and it's and it's not just once that's like a key part of their friendship as a like i mean that was i will tell you and i still one of my gigs by the way still is to review snl every week uh wow. and that's a weird one i've been doing it for a long time <laughs> for uh exclaim but um that's awesome yeah it's something uh but i've been watching that show Okay, just real quick for me, um, I was exposed to that show because my uh, parents, my mother's uh, brothers uh, and sister lived in Scarborough, Ontario. So we lived in Cambridge. So almost every weekend, I want to say, there would be some convoy of they'd either come to Cambridge. Very rarely would they come to see us, to be honest. We would go there and my parents would lose track of time. So we wouldn't leave till like one in the morning. Which meant oh, wow. I would watch SNL at my cousin's house, and that's how I first discovered it as a kid. Like so, nineteen eighty six or something like that. I was like, "What is this show? What? It seems dangerous. Why is this on the on the television?" And then I got kind of hooked. Um, so I just want to say, everyone disparages it. I also I'm I critique it with some measure of why is this not as good as it could be? Like I'm trying to be obje- objective. It's not a a pure passion thing. What does that show mean to you now? And what did it mean to you at that point in your life? I mean, it was everything to me in high school. And, you know, I, it was, it almost made like Saturday nights. Like it was like a thrill to, you know, get to stay up and, and watch it. And as soon as I, I guess I first started watching it in kind of the Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, Anna Gasteyer oh, wow. <laughs> <Okay>. years. <laughs> yeah. 
And then um, after, I remember, and, and I would watch it on sleepovers with my friends and that were literally called Rejects Night. And, uh, and then after oh, that was a real, yeah. you really called it rejects yeah. night. That's cute. That's funny. And yeah. then, and then after the episode would be over, they would air like a rerun from SNL afterwards on, I think on global. So the, and they, I think they'd go in chronological order. So it was weird because, you know, sometimes oh. it would be the seventies, but then it would get into like the horrible eighties, like Joe Piscopo years. Yeah. And yeah. then the nineties, which were so great. Cause that was like the Adam Sandler, um, you know, Chris Farley, Norm, 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 Norm McDonald. Yeah. I hope you appreciate yeah. my Norm, uh, respect. In yeah. The there's film. a Norm. Oh yeah. There's a, yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> there's a, there's a Jimmy Fallon dig, which no <laughs> offense. Uh, I'll just say that on your behalf. I, I'm happy to offend. But yes, that's a great little thank you. Yes, I laughed at that out loud. I love and Norm. And actually said out loud to my wife, Norm, like a child, like a like a kid. Oh, Norm. that's so sweet. It mentioned Norm. Well, I love, as you may know, I'm a big Norm fan. So, yeah. Sorry, continue. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just like, it, it totally shaped my whole life. And then, you know, it kind of coincided brilliantly with like Tina Fey then taking that show over and, you know, Mean Girls coming out. And I think for me, I, a young woman who wanted to be a comedy writer who had brown hair and glasses, you know, Tina Fey was like my, like, Mick Jagger. Like, I, I couldn't believe that that she existed, that she was so funny. I, I couldn't believe she's such an amazing writer. Mean Girls needs to be on the Criterion Collection. It's it's a masterpiece. And, um, you know, I just think her sense of humor, I really resonated, struck a chord with me and then her as a performer too. So then that really, that show, I think with also kind of the female lens of her becoming the head writer of SNL really, really like, I was like, damn, this is, this is my everything. I gather that this is an important, this is an important, Romina's character, I feel like represents some commentary, not just some, this is a character that I think represents the plight of women, and I feel like that's um, something that was very important to you as you were. And then there's also this. Sorry, I forget her name. Uh, the 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 young, uh, uh, aspiring and talented um, cinematographer. Uh, yeah, Lauren that, P. Uh, <laughs> Lauren P. Sorry, I knew it was initial there. <laughs> Lauren P. Yeah, this is important to you, right? Like this this idea of con- uh, exploring what it meant to be a woman uh, or a young girl in this era, uh, dealing with really fragile men yes. whose fragility makes them hateful and uh, yeah. controlling. Uh, sorry, maybe I'm articulating it for you, but <laughs> it was important for you to try to figure out a way to to convey what that experience was like for women and and how horrible they were treated by people like Lawrence and others? Yeah, I, mean, I feel like the whole popular culture in general was like all about humiliating women in the late to early 2000s, right? And pitting them against each other and, and having this horrible, you know, beauty standard that like nobody could meet and, you know, yeah. psychologically traumatizing and slut shaming women. And, you know, you see sort of like what happened to Britney Spears during that era and a lot of these like pop cultural icons from that time, you know, yeah. uh, Lindsay Lohan, um, you know, and Brittany Murphy. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like, um, yeah, it was just, it was just a ghastly time to be, to be a woman then. And there was nothing for us, you know, there was nothing, there was no, I had to, you know, when I was like growing up, like, yeah, the only things that I felt like I related to, I mean, it was like watching Woody Allen movies and like reading myself into Woody Allen, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, watching Manhattan as like a 13 year old and being like, oh, I, I connect to this. It's like so yeah. bizarre to think about that now. Um, but there was just, yeah, there was just like nothing, nothing for me. And 
even when I went to university, I mean, there was, there was kind of no canon where any yeah. female filmmakers were being really studied or celebrated on the syllabus of any of the classes that I, that I took. So I, there's so many female filmmakers that if I had known about them, then um, it would have been like really important lightning rods for me, but they just yeah. weren't even discussed. And and so I think it, that's why maybe I think I've, I've, as a cultural critic too, like as a really young woman writing about culture um, at a pretty vulnerable age when all of my mentors and bosses and the people I was kind of developing friendships with and work relationships with are all older men, you know, in their 30s and 40s. And I look back at that time now and I'm like, uh, was that okay? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and all the, the art that I was writing about was all created by men and, and stuff too. I mean, I was like a really young staff writer at iWeekly, like 22 years old, like one of, you know, two women on the staff and the amount of kind of scrutiny and, you know, misogyny just by people in their responses to the, the articles that I was writing was, was really uh, yeah. intense at the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I don't think I, I handled it well. <laughs> But I, I, you know, but there was nobody to be like, uh, this isn't okay. Or are you okay? Like, it's, it's really strange. Well, for what it's worth, and I mean, I don't exactly know how you did this. This film to me is a bit of a magic trick um, <laughs> because you've got a lot of different ideas interweaving beautifully. Uh, Romina's sort of monologue about her time in Hollywood is remarkable. Mm. And all I'm getting at is... You've left and created space for so many different kinds of ideas about family and about culture and misogyny and narcissism and selfishness and pain. Like it's sorry, I'm just rambling, but I just want to commend you because I was not expecting this when I put the movie on. I'd I'd been glancing at what I try not to read too much before I read a book or you know listen mm -hmm. to a record. I try to process things myself, but I was very happy for you to see how because that's the other part of this this film is res are you surprised by how well this film has resonated with people and is being received by people yeah absolutely because i think i made it in such a, a bubble you know and i think what was great about it was that i wasn't thinking about any of that stuff i was just kind of really operating in this sort of modicum of like pure joy and sort of thinking about things that i thought were beautiful or funny or interesting and i wasn't like oh, how is this going to connect with like viewers or what's like the marketing potential of any of this stuff, which I think is why yeah. it has connected with people because it's just so specific to my own experience that that's what kind of makes it universal. Has there been a one particularly thrilling, if you could pick one, I should say, <laughs> I'm sure there's been more than one. Has there been one particular, particularly exciting bit of feedback or like, oh my God, I can't believe so-and-so watched my film. Do you have anything like that? Oh yeah. I mean, Sarah Polly has just been such a generous champion of the movie oh, nice. and it's been absolutely insane. And uh, I remember <laughs> I sent her like a link to the, the film and then, you know, I wasn't sure if she was ever going to watch it, you know, which is totally fine. Full respect. She's on like an Oscar campaign around the world. Yeah, she's, yeah. And then I was in Norway at a film festival and I, I checked my phone and, and she sent me an email being like, Chandler, I have COVID and I've watched your movie and it's, it's, it's a masterpiece and you're an incredible director. And it was just, and, and like, if there's any way that I can help support the movie, like I, I really, really love it. And you just did such an amazing job and I'm actually going to watch it again and tonight. And I was like, oh, wow. And I, it really like, I was almost in tears, like to kind of 
Because I think making the movie was so hard that to have someone um, who you look up to so much that's such a hero of yours that like literally lives in the same city as you and and is such an incredible talent, like to have that kind of vote of confidence in your work um, meant a lot to me. And then since then, yeah, she just she just keeps tweeting about it like over and over. That's great. That's wonderful. (laughs) And I was I was like, this is unbelievable. You know, like the day after her Oscar when there's like she posted a picture of herself with her Oscar, but she's like. But never mind. Just watch I Like Movies by Taylor. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, it's, like I say, for for what it's worth, I don't think, I don't know. My wife was like, how do you know? I was like, yeah, it's my, I tend to drop the word friend too uh, much. And I'm like, that's my, co-. I said, uh, it's my friend, my colleague, Chandler's movie. <laughs> you know this person? I'm like, yeah. And then I was like, how do I know Chandler? And I'm like, I, I she asked me. And I'm like, I guess just from around, right? Like, is that how you? Oh, we were writing at I at the same time and definitely. But I never went to the office. Like, I never really did. Like, I was in Guelph, you know? Like, I yeah. was like, how do we know each other? I don't even know. Well, we but, have lots of friends in common and, you know, part of the yeah. same scene and kind of trajectory. We've been in the same same rooms. We sat yeah. together at a Pop Montreal thing. Like, I just Absolutely. like, yeah, I just, I don't know how I know anyone. I just, I'm like, yeah, we're just in the same places and we do the same things. Totally. Anyway, I didn't mean to get into that one quick thing before we wrap up because uh i I always marvel at um comedians and filmmakers and and authors who tap into their own real life experience for their expression i'm like how do you figure out if you've particularly for someone like you like you've said a lot about yourself in this film Mm -hmm. and it's resonating with people and like you said earlier this felt particularly authentic to you Mm-hmm. Do you have a next project in mind? And, and and if so, is it another like what part of my life <laughs> might be fodder for yeah. a film? Like if you had these sort of thoughts yet? Oh, yeah. I have another one like ready to go that I'm really hoping I get. I just applied to Telefilm with, with funding for it. And it's going to be produced by Matt Johnson and Matt Miller, who did Nirvana and the Band of Show. And oh, amazing. Blackberry, that was just at um, Berlin. And, 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 yeah. I've been, and I've been writing that script for about since 2015 so it's kind of a long time coming but yeah that one's kind of takes place in the early in 2011 so i'm i'm slowly but surely uh, edging up to contemporary uh, society <laughs> <laughs> but it's about um, it's it's drawn from your own life yeah in some way? it's sort of okay. a portrait of like the montreal music scene in the early in t- 2011 kind of when grimes and mac demarco were playing these tiny loft shows and uh, that's when I was living there for the first time when I was 24. Um, you know, it was like a young female music critic. So kind of investigates the idea of like why women date guys in bands. Is it because we want to be guys in bands and sort yeah. of the kind of weird, toxic, you know, undercurrents of, of that scene and the alienation of being like an Anglophone in Montreal and living in this place that doesn't actually want you there. And then. But it's like very much like a romantic comedy and kind of a, a hangout movie. And um, and and you know, in the tr- I studied film in the nineties, uh, and parts of the, those those uh, courses were uh, a heavy focus on Canadian filmmaking. And mm-hmm. I'm always struck by just how deeply Canadian certain filmmakers they stick to that. Like they're set in Canada. Yeah, there are references. The other thing that made me chuckle, by the way, is the numerous references to Guelph. And I like <laughs> movies and I just love that. Yeah. As you know, I yeah. lived there for a long time and uh, I still I miss it. But um, he's not a reliable narrator. So you know, <laughs> hopefully no true. one will take offense. Yeah. 
But my point was um, that is a choice that you're making that could uh, limit and narrow maybe. I mean, sorry, this might be old world thinking that yeah. regionalism might limit the appeal to an American audience or something like that. But did anyone, did you ever even have a fleeting thought of like, maybe I shouldn't be so Canadian with this so that it <laughs> resonates beyond like no one's, most people I listening mean, will be like, what was that word? Guelph? <laughs> what does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, I mean, this, this, the stakes were so low with this movie. I mean, it was yeah. like, it's not like I had like foreign investors in China being like, cast Jason Statham as Lawrence, you know. <laughs> that would have been an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, I think he would have been great, you know, really considered it. it was t- he was tech avail, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't, I think the thrill of like all kinds of Canadian culture and the Canadian culture that really has always struck a chord with me and the Canadian culture that's really traveled really far has been actually the regionality and specificity of setting, yeah. like in a really uncompromising way. I mean, that's why like Quebec, Cinema, so, you know, celebrated all over the world because, you know, Quebec filmmakers are really audacious and they never hide where they're from. They just, you know, revel in it. And that's why their, you know, film economy and box office is actually quite healthy because they have their own star system and they actually go and watch their own movies. You know, Guy Madden's depiction of Winnipeg, I love so much. Like the kids in the hall depiction of, you know, Toronto in the the 90s. Alice Monroe, the way that she writes about like Southwestern Ontario and her short stories, you know, Mordecai Rickler's like portrayal of like Mile End and Montreal, like in in music, you know, like the new pornographers are such a Vancouver band and Arcade Fire is such a Montreal, Quebec band and they're singing in French and in Haitian and stuff, you know. So I just don't understand why we don't, why why we have to make it this amorphous kind of bland thing where we have like, American currency and, and are just trying to disguise everything. Cause like, then we have nothing. Like we don't have the budget. We don't have the actors. And then you don't even have any kind of sense of place or anything to hold your hat on. Like, why do you want to watch a movie or read a book that that doesn't feel like anywhere? I was just trying to invoke the personality and mindset of a 1990s promotional person being like, uh, <laughs> do you really want, why can't we set this in Boston? You know what I mean? Like I, I just, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, a, I fully uh, appreciate and, and understand why uh, you would set it where you would. And, and I'm not questioning it. I just wonder if you ever questioned it um, in terms of. No, I, I think I just always want to like double down on that. I yeah. think. Um, you know, and I think there's so many really fascinating parts of Canada that really need to be like immortalized. And I guess what the thrill of doing it with Burlington is that it is this very bland, you know, kind of place, but most of Canada actually looks like that. It it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like the four places where Canadian films are always set, which is like Toronto, a fishing village in Newfoundland, or like, (laughs) you know, someplace that's pretending to be Montreal or New York, you know, it's, yeah. Lord, Lord knows we've learned a lot about Montreal if we've read books by Heather O'Neill or the merit or the yeah. the prairies from Miriam Taves. Like it's not. Yeah, I, yeah. I exactly. feel like I'm tapped into those places right away as soon as I dig in. And yeah. and I mean, th- think of a place like New Jersey, like where you know yeah. the people who are from there really champion it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the likes of obviously, well, I don't have spring breath. Bruce Springsteen. Kevin Smith, like, you know, uh, speaking (laughs) of a video store uh, uh, proponent (laughs) or whatever. Yeah, like, I think there's something. I never thought twice about it. But I think as a kid when I would see. Or Douglas Copeland. Or Douglas Copeland. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, sorry. There is a long tradition of it. I appreciate you being a part of it 
and and doing something that's true to you. Um, and I think that's the main thing you're probably saying. Like, why the hell would I set this anywhere else? This is where you literally shot it where you were raised. Like, that's amazing that you could do that. And yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody has a really complicated relationship to where they're from, their hometown, right? And yeah. it's always kind of a push and pull yeah. kind of thing. And, but it, it's very deeply meaningful to me. I mean, I remember when I, when I, we did a day of shooting exteriors in Burlington and I had this, it was me and my cinematographer and we had these like Panavision lenses and we're just kind of driving around Burlington with a van, like filming outside of the window and stuff. And I remember we, we wrapped and we actually wrapped at a restaurant. And we went for dinner at this restaurant that was in the same exact plaza where I'd worked at in Blockbuster, oh. so which is now at Tim Hortons. So I could like see literally like the place that I worked at as a teenager, like out the window, you know. Yeah. And it was just this really meaningful thing of like being like, I can't believe that, you know, the person who was working around, walking around this Blockbuster in a sash that said Spider-Man 2 available now on DVD, you know. <laughs> Uh, asking people if they had a membership like that person would have never believed that like 15 years later they would be with their camera crew like you know having wrapped their first feature film like so i don't know i just think it's like there's so many songs to be sung (laughs) about about canada and in really interesting multifaceted complex ways you know it doesn't have to just be hardcore canadiana like where we're just celebrating canada as this country that doesn't have any problems like I think there's a lot of really fascinating movies that have been made in the, in the past few years and even this year that really delve into kind of the complexities of it with with a lot of humor and urgency and really yeah. cinematic vibrancy. So it's an exciting time. Well, I apologize if the question came across as um, disparaging or whatever. I think sometimes when you're so close to a place, uh, it's hard to see the magic in it. And that's coming from my perspective. Yeah. I actually, at one point, thinking about the various trips I would have to take to Toronto from Guelph on the train, I never even encountered the name Aldershot until it showed up and like, next stop, Aldershot. I'm like, Aldershot? Where are we, Milton? What is that? And then it comes up in your movie, Aldershot, and I'm like, Aldershot. I know that just from traveling on the train line, not driving. (laughs) I don't think there's a sign on the 401, a major highway in Ontario, that even says Aldershot. Is there? I don't think there is. I mean, there's a go train stop. That's what I'm saying. Um, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, that's it's, what it's I remember. It's a neighborhood in, in yeah, Burlington. Yeah. Anyway, I've got, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I want to wrap this up. I've taken us down a circuitous route <laughs> off the train tracks. I'm sorry. We covered a lot of ground, we, you know. We did. Holocaust. We did. Uh, trauma. Um. <laughs> there's no need to summarize it. I'll put little podcast yeah. notes in and people can figure it out for themselves. Uh, Chandler, I want to do some uh, business here. Uh, if people want to access or see, this remarkable movie that you've made, uh, where can they learn more about it and, and how can they do that? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, well, right now it's playing um, in select theaters across Canada. So I guess you could Google the name of the film and maybe what city you live in and see if the showtimes pop up. You can also follow us on Instagram. I think we're I like movies underscore the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for updated info or just slide into my DMs and I'll, I'll tell you what's up. Okay. Yeah. And it's, the film will also be available uh, to rent on VOD via Mongrel Media, um, I think in about six weeks. So if you miss it in a theater, um, you can always rent it online through all channels, but uh, it's really, really fun to watch in an audience, um, especially, um, you know, after, after 
in a post-pandemic landscape, it's like a great comedy. It plays well with an audience. So yeah, would mean a lot if, if you watched it and let me know what you thought of it. And then potentially streaming service stuff might come up at some point. Like you mentioned the renting, but maybe. Oh, yeah. It'll be available on Netflix Canada in uh, September. Oh, too. congratulations. That's great. Thank September. You. But that's... don't wait. No, don't no, wait don't that wait. long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, uh, okay. And if people want to follow you or learn more about you, per se? Uh, yeah. If you want to step into my... Uh, my darkened quarters of my mind. If this podcast didn't alienate you uh, enough, you can follow me on Instagram and, and Twitter at, at Clovac, C-L-E-V as in Victor, A-C-K. Yeah, I'll link to all these things in the uh, <laughs> podcast description so people can just click on them. Uh, Chandler, I hope, sorry if this was too dark and alienating, but I hope you enjoyed yourself <laughs> and we got to some good stuff. And uh, it was a pleasure Absolutely. to speak with you. And I'm again, for what it's worth, I'm proud of you. I'm not your father, Thank but you. I feel like our brother or anything, but I, or uncle, I just feel proud of you and I'm happy Aww, for you. That's so sweet. I, I just am. I don't know what else to say. It's how I feel <laughs> when my friends and colleagues are doing well. I am excited. And this is just such a remarkable achievement. I like movies. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you for this. I hope you had fun and best of luck in the future. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's a fantastic podcast and uh, I'm an honor to be a part of it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Oh, very special thanks again to Chandler Levac for appearing on this, the 762nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. And also like Creative Control on Facebook or follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative. Or you can follow me directly on Instagram and on Twitter at Vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to support me and the work I do on this podcast. That's the primary source of revenue for all of the work that goes into uh, making this show for you uh, each and every week, it seems. I think that's pretty much accurate. Did I miss a week? I don't think I have. Anyway, it's a, it's a fair amount of work, and there's uh, not a lot of revenue, and uh, it's nice to do it. I like doing the show, don't get me wrong, but if you feel like you've got some uh, dough and you want to put it towards something that you like and you like this show, well, head over to patreon.com slash creativecontrol and, and uh, make your pledge today. $6 or more American a month grants you access to 
exclusive content and you also get episodes earlier than everybody else uh, and if you'd like uh, if you want to receive a Creative Control t-shirt just message me on Patreon and I'll get you one while supplies last it doesn't have to be $6 American it could be $6 Italian or it could be anything really and you can change it at any point you could you can make it one thing and then you can make it higher you can make it $10 after it was at 6 or you can make it $4 after it was at 6 you can make it $200 a month. Whatever you can afford and feel compelled to uh, send my way to support the show means a lot. Again, patreon.com slash creative control to make your flexible monthly donation today. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks as always to my friend Jim Guthrie for lending me some music of his for this show you can learn more about Jim and his wonderful world of music at jimguthrie.org and finally thank you so much for listening to this episode with Chandler Levac. I hope you'll check out this brilliant new film I like movies it's really really moving and funny and hard and all the good things I mean really it, it's it'll change you a little bit I tell you you'll leave altered after the film's done so thank you to Chandler and thank you for you, uh, to you again for listening to this episode and for subscribing to it or following the show and telling your friends about it and spreading the word about creative control. It means a lot. All right, I'm going to go. I will talk to you very soon. I hope. Be well. Bye for now. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.